It has been a wonderful morning so far, and I hate to, to change the mood a bit, but I'd like to start this morning by saying something that cancer is an awful disease. It destroys the body, it disrupts organ function, and in some cases, it leads to death. And likely everyone in this room knows someone who's been affected by cancer. And you might think, why in the world are you opening with such a topic? Well, let me assure you, it's not because I want to cause anyone any pain this morning. That's not my intention. I open with this topic today because in today's passage, it's a warning. There is something just as damaging to our spiritual lives as cancer is to a physical life. And that's unbelief. Unbelief is the cancer of the Christian life. As we continue in Mark, it's important to remember where we are in our journey. Jesus, you may remember, is headed toward Jerusalem. He is headed toward the cross, and he knows it. And he's talked with his disciples about what's going to happen. He gave them the plan, and you may remember, they didn't like the plan. And then last week... He took Peter, James, and John up a mountain, and he was transfigured before them. And why did he do that? To show them a glimpse into the kingdom, to show them that the kingdom is coming and that the pain and suffering that is experienced here on earth is worth it. Now we see from our text, Peter, James, John, and Jesus, they're all coming back down the mountain, and it's like they're suddenly thrown back into real life. They have had this amazing mountaintop experience and they come back down to the grind of life. Read with me again verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Your first point this morning from our text is this. Unbelief is the cancer to the Christian life Because faithlessness results in failure. Unbelief is the cancer of the Christian life because faithlessness results in failure. Now picture the scene. Jesus and the three, they come down from the mountain and they're immediately met with this chaotic situation. By the way, this should remind us of something. This should remind us of Moses. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, he was having this literal mountaintop experiencing, experiencing the glory of God. But when he came down the mountain, what happened? He ran into rebellious Israel who had turned from God already and was worshiping a calf. He ran into chaos and Jesus and the three, similar here, they come down after meeting with God, after seeing the glory of God and they come down to an argument. Now, the nine disciples who stayed behind, they're arguing with the scribes, and you'll remember scribes are teachers of the law, and there's this crowd standing around, watching this argument. 
And the crowd sees Jesus. And I love how they respond. They, they run to him. They're, they're surprised and they're delighted and they run to him. And probably because Jesus is popular, obviously, there was a crowd wherever he went and they come to him. Now, Jesus comes down and he sees the argument and he's trying to get to the bottom of it. But before anyone can speak up, the father of this demon-possessed boy shares. He shares his story with Jesus that reveals that, uh, reveals that in Jesus' absence, he had asked the disciples to cast out this demon, but they couldn't do it. Now, there's a lot going on here, so let's just kind of piece this together. What was happening in Jesus' absence? In this culture, when a rabbi was absent, he relied on his disciples to carry on his work. So the father of this demon-possessed son, he shows up hoping Jesus would heal his son because doubtless he'd heard the stories, he'd heard what Jesus had done, how he'd healed, how he cast out demons. However, Jesus isn't there, so the father turns to the disciples. Now you may remember, the disciples had been given power to cast out demons. That came from Mark chapter 6 when Jesus sent out the 12 to preach and to do miracles and to cast out Jesus. He gave them authority over the the demons. And nowhere in scripture do we see that power rescinded. There's every reason to believe the disciples still have that power. Why couldn't they cast out the demon? We'll get to that. We see from the text here there's a crowd. And like I said, it's not surprising. There's always a crowd where Jesus is. And there are scribes, teachers of the law, and at some point, these scribes entered into an argument with the disciples. Now, Jesus tried to get to the bottom. What's this argument about? We're not exactly told what the argument's about, but it's honestly not hard to think about. It's not hard to figure this one out. See, something about scribes, they did not claim to be able to do miracles. They were versed in the Old Testament. They knew their scriptures. They knew them inside and out. So when you think of a scribe, you think of somebody who's highly educated. Now, Jesus' disciples are uneducated men. We've talked about that. They're uneducated men who claim to be able to cast out demons. And then this father shows up with a demon-possessed son. They try to do this exorcism and fail. So what happens? An argument An argument breaks out between these educated scribes who are, honestly, they're not surprised that these quote-unquote bumpkin disciples failed, and the uneducated disciples who are now put to shame because they failed, they're arguing and trying to insist, no, we have this power. We really do. Why isn't it working? I don't know. I mean, you could just hear the bickering back and forth that's going on right now. And this is the moment like the parent that enters the room with two kids squabbling, this is the moment Jesus returns. But like I said, he can't get to the bottom of things before the father speaks out. And you can just hear in, the wor- in this father's words his desperation as he describes his demon-possessed son and the effects that this demon possession has. Now, it's interesting to note, Jesus' response when the father tells When the father tells him that the disciples couldn't cast out the demons, what does he say? Look at verse 19. Jesus says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus remarks, O faithless generation. What in the world is he saying there? Is he referring to the disciples? 
In part, yes. Actually, directly, yes. I think he is referring to the disciples. He, 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 because he says this right after he hears that his own disciples could not do this. When they had, they should have had the power to do it. But I also believe that this is a broad term that refers to all who lack faith. Jesus had a similar situation in chapter 8. You may remember when the Pharisees demanded a sign from Jesus, Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit in that passage. And in that passage, he says, why does this generation ask for a sign? So it appears this phrase, O faithless generation, is a reference to the disciples specifically, but then broadly to all those without faith. And then he makes two statements, two statements that could seem disheartening. He says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Is Jesus frustrated? Is he expressing an attitude of frustration? Yes. We can make an argument that he is, that's exactly what he's doing. See, Jesus has been with the disciples roughly about three years at this point. He's taught them much. He's granted them the ability to cast out demons. He shared his plan of suffering and dying with them. And yet time and time again, they didn't get it. Do you remember how quickly they'd forgotten about the feeding of the 5,000? When the feeding of the 4,000 gathered, Jesus wanted to repeat that miracle and the disciples failed to have faith then. And we see time and time and time again, they fail to have faith even though Jesus is right there with them and he has demonstrated his power over and over again. So we get to our passage and he's frustrated. He never sins in his frustration, but he is frustrated and he expresses it. And can't you see in your minds the disciples just kind of sheepishly cowering as Jesus is saying this? Unbelief is the cancer to the Christian life because faithlessness results in failure. I asked earlier, why did the disciples fail to cast out the demon? Answer, because they lacked the faith. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait, where does it say that they lacked the faith? Well, Jesus does say that in verse 19, O faithless generation. But he also points out their lack of faith in verse 29 when he tells them this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And we'll get to that. But the bottom line, here's what happened. They had been given the authority to cast out demons in chapter 6. A lot has happened since then. And we get to this point, and likely the disciples have a we-can-do-this mentality. We've done it before. That kind of attitude. What they're doing here is they're relying on their own strength. See, a lot of times, we see faithlessness as fear. Sometimes we, we equate faithlessness with fear. We think, you know, I, I wanted to witness to that guy, but, but I was too afraid. I lacked the faith. And that's a true statement. You can say that. Faithlessness can result from fear, but faithlessness can be a result of overconfidence. It's an I got this kind of attitude. Samson had this attitude. After his hair was cut, he went out thinking he'd overpower the Philistines as he had before. But God wasn't with him. The disciples are caught in that same trap of overconfident faith. Or, oh, I'm sorry, overconfident faithlessness. They don't reach out to the Lord. Instead, they trust in themselves. And this is a message that we hear from our world all the time. 
The power is in you. Trust in yourself. We hear that over and over again. And you know what? Even as Christians, we can get caught up in overconfidence and end up relying on self instead of God. And this can look many different ways. It can be flat-out disobedience. It can be flat-out refusing to obey God's word because we think we know better. Overconfidence can also come, believe it or not, from doing right things. Overconfidence can come from doing right things. For instance, I can read my Bible. I can read good Christian literature. I can do my praying and do my witnessing, do my going to church, all good things, all essential things, yes, but you can do these things all the while relying on your own efforts. Like the Pharisees, we may gravitate toward the Bible and think that our efforts, our spiritual disciplines in God's word, that's what grows us, but no. See, no Bible study grows us spiritually. It's the Bible that leads us to God himself. And that's what causes growth. It's about the word of God getting to the person of God. It's a subtle shift. It's subtle. And it's easy to fall into this trap. I've been there and so have you. You know, there's another word for this overconfident faithlessness. It's called pride. It's pride in what I'm doing, it's pride in who I am, and it's forgetting the God who created me and the God that I need. So church, let me challenge you. Guard yourself against faithlessness, against overconfident faithlessness by checking your heart. Are you acting in your own power or are you relying in God? And sometimes that's not easy to tell, so we have to go back and check. Who am I relying on, me Our God, have I gotten into such a groove of spiritual disciplines that I'm forgetting the whole point of my spiritual disciplines? They're to bring me deeper into a relationship with my Savior. So let me challenge you this week. Get alone with God and pray and ask him to reveal to you where are the areas in my life that I have become overconfident, that I may be acting out of faithlessness instead of acting in faith. And then whatever God reveals to you, let me encourage you, repent of that and ask for his strength. And if we don't do this regularly, if we don't check our heart, we'll continue functioning in our own strength and eventually we're gonna fail in some way. You can only get so far in your own strength. So rely on God's power, not your own. Look at verse 20 with me. And they brought the boy to him And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe Help my unbelief. Your second point this morning is this. Unbelief is the cancer to the Christian life, and it starts with doubt. It starts with doubt. In our story, the boy is brought to Jesus, and isn't it interesting that as we have seen in our study, the Spirit has to announce itself. Whenever Jesus encounters a person who is possessed The demon has to make itself known. We've seen that all along in our study in Mark. It's like Jesus is a metal detector for demons. 
They can't hide when he's present. We've seen demons declare who Jesus is, just shout out, you are the Christ. But this demon reacts differently. It sees Jesus, and it's almost like it goes into a panic. It convulses the boy, just like the boy's father said. And Jesus asked this question. Isn't this interesting? He says, how long has this been happening to him? Does that seem like an odd question to ask, especially coming from Jesus? Let's just think about it. Jesus knows this boy's past. He's God. He even knows the demon that possesses the boy by name. Jesus created this demon as an angel before it turned into demon. Also, what does it matter how long the demon has been possessing the boy? It's not going to change the way Jesus addresses the situation. He's not going to change his method of exorcism because the boy's been possessed for so long. Why does he ask this question? Jesus asked this question as a demonstration of his compassion. How do we express interest in someone else? The easiest way is to ask questions. This is a skill that I've been trying to learn because when we ask questions, it communicates interest in them, compassion in them, love toward them. Even though Jesus didn't need to do this, he did it as an act of compassion. And the father answers that the boy has been acting this way since childhood, since, since he was younger. He's still a boy, but since he was younger. And this gives us a glimpse into the pain that this father has been through. And if you as a parent, if you've ever experienced your child suffering, even mildly, you know it's torture as a parent. We hate seeing our kids in pain, and we would gladly take that pain for them if we could. Within this father's answer is also an insight into his doubt, if you can. He'd heard the stories of what Jesus could do, or he wouldn't be there. What causes this doubt? Could it be that the disciples' failure and the ensuing argument has distracted him, and now he's doubtful, possibly? But let's just face it. Doubts are true of all of us, isn't it? Who doesn't struggle with doubt sometimes? Who doesn't struggle with doubt in their Christian walk? In my, uh, before my dad entered the army, he wanted to play football. And that's a dream for him that never panned out. But nonetheless, my dad was a good athlete. He really was. I remember one time I was throwing the football around with him, and I had a couple of friends that joined us. And my dad said, go long. So we went long. Go longer. So we went longer. Go longer. So we went longer. And then he set up to kick the football. Now, my friend looked at me with doubt and said, who does he think he is, Joe Montana? For those of you who don't know, Joe Montana was a football player in the 90s. Anyway, <laughs> then my dad kicked the football, and my friend's jaw dropped. It was a good kick. You know, in our spiritual lives, doubts come easy. They do. How easy is it for negative thoughts to creep in? You know, I've been praying for my friend to receive Christ, but he's so worldly. It'll never happen. Or, I'm going to always struggle with this sin issue. I can't see my way out of this. Or, I am just in a dark place in my life, 
and I don't know if I'm ever going to get out. What are these thoughts? They're doubts. Doubting that God is good. Doubting that God is all-powerful. Doubting that God is in control. You know, I've talked about doubts before. I have. And I said to you, it's okay to have doubts. And I believe that. So long as we don't let those doubts fester. We should take our doubts and pursue answers. But if we stubbornly persist in our doubts without seeking the Lord, it's going to grow into faithlessness. It becomes a crutch and continued to be unchecked. We're going to walk with a limp in our Christian life. When doubts enter our mind, they can lead us down one of two paths. Either we seek the Lord in our doubt, we ask questions, we seek answers, and we trust him even if those answers don't come. Or we let those doubts fester and grow until unbelief takes hold. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe God can't do it. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And it is tempting to doubt, I'll be honest. Sometimes I think we're tempted to express doubts to one another because we want to appeal, appear realistic. You know, we, we say things like, I know God can do this, but, and that's living in doubt, when God wants something bigger for you. You know how I often, at the end of the service, I often give a benediction, and oftentimes it comes from Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. This is going to be on the screen. Just read this with me. It says, now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than what? Than all we ask or think. Is that the God you serve? What is his limitation? Why do we let our doubts hinder our faith in his work? He wants to do in your life more than you could ask or think. So challenge those doubts by remembering who God is. Maybe the reason that you haven't seen God work miraculously in your life is because you entertain the doubts instead of capturing them. We read some months ago in our study in Mark that Jesus went to his hometown in Nazareth and he could not do much there because of their unbelief. The scripture says it this way, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. Could doubts be hindering the work God wants to do in you. Capture those doubts. 2 Corinthians 10.5 reads, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take captive those thoughts. We say no to that doubt and yes to Jesus. We remind ourselves of who God is. He who parted the Red Sea. He who rose from the dead. He who took Saul's hard heart and turned him into Paul, one of the greatest evangelists ever. Your God can do all this and more. Don't try to appear realistic. Be a man or woman of faith.
And you might say to yourself, that's what I want. And that's what I try, but I still doubt. I still fear. I'm still unsure. You know, the truth is, some Christians, all Christians struggle with doubt. But some Christians struggle with persistent doubt. And it's agonizing to them. I read an article this week entitled, Doubt, A Personal History by a man named Scott Hubbard. And he writes this. You can read this on the screen. It can make you desperate, doubt can. For almost two years, I burned through notebooks, journaling anguished thoughts and pleading prayers. I listened obsessively to sermons, searching for some voice that could cast away the demon. Doubt haunted this man like a demon. And that's what doubt can do. It can gnaw at your mind, leaving you frantic. What's the answer? Jesus says to the father of the boy in verse 23, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible for the one who believes. Now, just, just to let you know, that's not a blank check kind of faith. It's not, you know, if I believe I'm going to be rich and famous, then I will be. It's not a name it, claim it theology. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying anything is possible when a person fully trusts in the power of God. A commentator in the book of Mark named David Garland, he writes it this way. This affirmation does not mean that faith can accomplish anything, but that those who have faith will set no limits to the power of God all things are possible for the one who believes. And then the father cries this out. And can I be honest with you? This is the cry of my heart. The father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Despite his doubts, the father here does the right thing. He turns to Jesus and he just lays it all out. I do believe, but not fully. There are gaps in my faith. Help my unbelief. Of this verse, John MacArthur writes, just as he pleaded in desperation for Jesus to deliver his son from the demon, so also did he plead for Jesus to help him be delivered from his unbelief. This is our path through our doubts. I'm not saying don't have doubts. We're all gonna have them. I'm saying, don't be dominated by your doubts. Don't let your doubts lead you to discouragement, causing you to fail to act as you should or act in a way you shouldn't. Take those doubts to Jesus. Confess your unbelief and pray that he will grow your faith. That's the work of the Christian, by the way. That's the Christian life. 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. We are charged to believe, to believe in Jesus. And we do that, of course, the moment we're saved, yes, but you see, that's also, the only, that's also where our faith grows. Our entire lives are to be lived in faith, in trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is with us, that he does care for us, 
that he will walk through the darkness with us and that he is coming back for us. The Christian life is a life of ever-growing faith. And that's why unbelief is the cancer to the Christian life because it robs us of the life God wants for us. And by the way, before I move on, for those of you out there who may be struggling with persistent doubts, let me just encourage you, keep seeking God. Confide in good Christian friends. And do this. Take time away from your doubts. Like, what does that mean? Cast your mind on other things. That same article I told you I read, Doubt, A Personal History, the author writes this. What then can doubters do beyond seeking answers? Sit long under the sky of God's glory, breathing deeply creation's soul oxygen. Escape self by weeping and rejoicing with God's people. Sit in the gathering and singing of glories far above you and problems not your own. Find mind rest in the hard labor of a worthy vocation. And above all, slowly, prayerfully, and longingly consider Jesus. In other words, do things like he mentioned in that quote to get our minds off our doubts, to take a break from those doubts and just ponder the Lord. Unbelief is the cancer to the Christian life because faithlessness results in failure, because it starts with doubt. And finally, unbelief is the cancer to the Christian life, but the cure is faith in God. Read with me verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The cure is faith in God. Now, I know that sounds like a pat answer. That sounds like one of those Christianese things that we say, just have faith, but hang with me a minute, okay? Let's unpack this. Right after the father cries out for help with his unbelief, Jesus looks and sees a crowd running together. Now, is that a little odd? The crowd had already run to him and greeted him. What's going on here? It's really kind of hard to figure this one out. So a couple things might be happening. At times, we've seen Jesus take the injured person, the demonically possessed person, aside and deal with them. And that possibly what could have happened here, and the crowd is just catching back up. It's also possible that more people were joining the crowd, and that's what Mark is referring to. We really don't know, but somehow there's a crowd coming again. And Jesus sees this, and he knows it's time to act. He rebukes the unclean spirit, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And just as before, just as Jesus has always done, he just speaks to the demon. He speaks to it. That's all he needs to do. And Jesus adds something here. He says, never enter him again. 
I think Jesus is wanting to communicate to the Father. He's wanting to assure the Father that this demon is going and it's gone forever. Gone. And Jesus probably added this based upon the time frame that the boy had been dealing with this possession. But he wanted to make it clear, I'm calling this demon out and it's over. And after the display of demonic dramatics, the spirit leaves. It's gone. And so violent was its departure that it left the boy totally exhausted to the point that he appeared to be dead. But all it took was a touch from Jesus, and he was on his feet. Now, at this point, I would have loved for Mark to have written of the father's reaction. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? But true to Mark's style, he abruptly changes scenes. We follow Jesus into the house. What house? No idea. We're not even exactly sure where Jesus is right now, what what town he might be near. We're we're not even sure. We just know that he frequented many houses, and maybe he just kind of walked into people's houses at random. I don't know. But he goes into this house, and here is where the disciples ask the question that's been burning on their minds. Why couldn't we do it? Jesus answers, And we get the sense as we read this that he does answer them graciously. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's deal with this verse. First of all, what does he mean by this kind? A couple things here. It could be a reference to demonic hierarchy, okay? Scripture does give evidence that spirits have differing strength, There is variety in the angelic world, just like there's variety in the physical world. Some are stronger than others. And there's scriptural evidence for this in in places like Daniel chapter 10, in the book of Jude, and 2 Peter 2. There's no need for me to go to those passages. If you're interested, please look them up later. So we could mean this kind in the sense that this is a stronger demon than others. That's one possibility. But that's not what I believe is going on here. I think when he says this kind, Jesus is referencing demons in general. It's like saying these can only be driven out by prayer or demons can only be driven out by prayer. I believe what Jesus is saying here is this demon, like all demons, can only be exercised with prayer. Now, why do I say that? I say that because that was the disciples' problem. That's what they had forgotten. They were trying to do this in their own strength. They weren't able to cast out this demon because they weren't drawing upon God's power. See, Jesus emphasizes prayer because a praying person is a faith-filled person. If we are honestly seeking the Lord in prayer, that means we realize our own weaknesses and are striving to rely on him because we need him. And that's what faith does. Faith does not look to self, it looks to God. Jonathan Edwards believed so strongly that prayer was essential to the Christian life that he said this, if you have left off calling upon God, It's time for you to leave off hoping and flattering yourself with an imagination that you are children of God. Ouch. What he's saying there is, if you're not praying, you're not a Christian. Excuse me. The cure to unbelief is simply faith. 
And the gateway to faith is honest communication with God. Excuse me. Prayer is communion with God. Prayer is communication with the Lord. Prayer is what fuses that relationship. And think about this. You can't have a relationship with someone if there's no communication. You just can't. You can have these kind of pseudo-relationships. You know, that, that, that guy that's in the cubicle that you pass on your way to work, that you might know his face, he might know yours, but you've never spoken to him. That's not a relationship. That's a nothing. You could have one-sided relationships where one person is spending all their energy and time and communication, but the other is not reciprocating. That's not a healthy relationship at the least. The only way to have a strong, healthy relationship is to be in constant communion with someone, and that goes for God. And the only way to have communion with God is through prayer. Yes, his word Yes, the Holy Spirit, essential things. But if you're just reading God's word and there's no prayer life, that's not a healthy relationship. That's not built on faith. If we believe there is a God, we need to talk to him as if he's there. The cure to unbelief is faith in God. Now, what is faith? Let's define that. Because faith is one of those words that we can use, one of those Christianese terms, but we might miss its full meaning. Faith is simply this. Faith is trust. When you think of faith, think of trust. Faith is trusting God. Now, how do we trust God? Because let's be honest. Sometimes we think we're trusting God when we're really fighting with God. It can be sneaky. You've even felt it. There's a tussle in your heart. As part of you might be trying to trust God, but the other part of you is trying to lean on your own strength. How do we get beyond that? Surrender. To trust God is to fully surrender to him. In another word, it's yieldedness. We yield ourselves to whatever God has. Faith is trusting in God, and we're trusting in God when we're fully surrendered to him, and we get there through prayer. I'll say that again. Faith is trusting in God, And we're trusting in God when we are fully surrendered to him and we get there through prayer. That's hard. Because sometimes our hearts are so self-focused that it's hard to get to the point of surrender. But we need to get there. How? Let me just share a few things with you that have helped me. When I'm stuck... When my heart is resistant to surrender, and I know it, I just need to stop everything sometimes, find a place where I can be alone, or at least a place away from people, and just pray. I need to stop and fully focus on the Lord, and sometimes that's all it takes. Sometimes I feel the release inside of me, I surrender, and I can move forward. But sometimes it takes more than that. Sometimes I need to stop and praise Him in song, singing along with some of my favorite praise songs or just singing in my head to get my heart right. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, it takes more than that. Sometimes my own prayers aren't working and I need the prayers of another. And I go to my wife, I go to another brother, I go to my small group and I reach out and say, help, pray for me. 
let me encourage you to do those things, to keep your heart in a state of surrender, in a state of fully trusting God. Oswald Chambers wrote this, praying does not fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greater work. Why do you think Jesus turned to prayer before his greatest act of love? Jesus turned to prayer the night before he was crucified because he needed his father. What did he keep praying over and over again? He prayed this, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He didn't want to go through with it. He needed strength. Do you realize that your Savior in that garden, he needed strength? Do you realize that before he went to the cross, he needed strength from the Lord? Did you realize that Luke twenty two forty three tells us, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him? That blows my mind. But what does it teach us? That if my Savior and if your Savior needed to be strengthened, how much more do we Jesus was strengthened. Jesus faced the cross. Jesus conquered. And because of that, you and I have a wide open door to approach him for our strength every single day. Keep your faith strong by keeping your eyes on your Savior, your eyes on the cross, your eyes on his victory. Unbelief is a cancer to the Christian life, but thankfully, thankfully, preciously, gratefully, wonderfully, there is a cure. It is faith. Faith in the God who loves us and gave himself up for us. Let's you and I together keep our eyes on him. Will you pray with me? Father, you call us to simply have faith. And yet that simple request is so very hard. We fail at it every single day. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Lord, help us to look for you and your example. Help us to draw our strength from you and not from our own efforts. Fill us every day with your spirit so that we may be effective for whatever you have for us that day. Lord, forgive us of our failures. Strengthen our doubts and help us come back to faith in you over and over again. For it's in the great and awesome name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.